You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine what it's like to be a rancher. Your livestock is your means of economic survival. Whether you're raising them for food or for wool or for milk, if your livestock's vulnerable, then you're vulnerable. Your economic security and perhaps even your physical safety depend on their safety and well-being. So if something starts killing off your herds, you take note. And in the borderlands of Australia, something is killing the livestock. And more than a few people think the culprit's something out of place. Large, exotic, killer cats. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. I'm Blake Smith, and this is Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. In cryptozoology, we call them alien big cats, large, mysterious, predatory cats spotted outside of their expected environments. Reports of such creatures come from the UK, the US, and Australia. And today, historian David Waldron joins Karen Stolzno and I in a conversation about his research on mysterious large cat reports from down under. Monster Talk. Uh, today we're talking again with Dr. David Waldron, who's a lecturer in history and anthropology at Federation University in Ballarat, Victoria, Australia. And he's the author of the 2012 book, uh, Snarls from the Tea Tree, Victoria's Big Cat Folklore, along with co-author Simon Townsend, who's a naturalist and writer-researcher. And we're talking to you, David, to uh, talk about why big cat panics have haunted generations of Australians living in southeastern Australia. And I have to tell you, enjoy the book very much. And mm-hmm. um, this is a, this kind of fits in with what uh, cryptozoology talks about as alien big cats, which is one of my favorites, because there's no inherent reason why these couldn't be real creatures. You know, just, I mean, it's not like they're from another planet or they can teleport or whatever in general. But uh, uh, I guess that being said, how did you become interested in big cat folklore? Well, what actually happened is after I um, wrote a previous book I was interviewed on by you guys before, uh, uh, Shock the Black Dog of Bungie, um, the 
head of uh, research at what was at the time University of Ballarat, Frank uh, Stegnetti, said to me, can you do something on Australian folklore or it would fit our position better as a regional university and so on. And I'd heard these yarns since I was a little boy growing up around Warrigal and Druin in Gippsland and I thought, well, why not have a look into this and actually get a bit of a tracing of the history, where it came from, why the story has such a enormous cultural resonance for something which on the face of it shouldn't be really that much of a remarkable claim, any different to say feral pigs or any of the other of the hundreds or thousands of species we've introduced into Australia. So, you know, stage one, I started going through and tracing it out it was, as it had been reported in Australian newspapers and government documents and so on. And then after a while, I started finding I... I was constantly running across claims of particular types of kills being big cat kills compared to wild dog kills and I needed to get someone who was actually going out in the field and collecting that kind of material which is how I ended up uh, meeting and chatting to Simon and then I thought I could really use his input in the book because he's doing precisely those sorts of... Uh, uh, looking at those that particular type of material which I had no experience with. I was going out with people looking at a sheet and going, well, it's dead, I can tell that. <laughs> So I needed that kind of uh, background. And he, you know, running Big Cats Victoria, the website, and going out to people who claimed to have had big cat kills on their property, you know, he had oceans of that kind of data that I could have a look at in more detail. Well, David, could you tell us a little bit about the history of big cat sightings in Victoria? Yes, look, I divided up into three general stages in a, in a loose sense of some overlap, but I see three general themes. The first is the period of early colonisation running from the 1790s up until the 1870s, which is dominated in my experience by people trying to apply the tools people had learned from Africa and Asia to the Australian wilderness and indeed finding it quite wanting. So you get all these early stories of uh, people doing things like, there's a story at one point from 1826 of people thinking there's hippopotamuses living on Rottnest Island. <laughs> and the largest bigger rottenest island is like a little quokka, you know, it's a little uh, kangaroo-like animal. And when you actually get to the details of what these guys wrote, it's not as absurd as it sounds in that they're there with experience from Africa. They saw large shapes in the bay at one point. They heard strange calls at night they couldn't identify. One of the sailors in this uh, ship said it sounded to him like a hippo from when he'd been in um, Africa. People ran with that, they found diggings and things along the bank, and so they took those signs to mean hippopotamuses, because in Africa that's what they would mean. Over in Australia it meant something different, but people just did not understand the landscape or the environment or the animals. They didn't know what to make of them. You know, when people first encountered a platypus, they thought it was a, a practical joke or a hoax. So there's a lot of these kind of stories. Um, there's a story of a guy thinking he's hunting elephants in Western Australia. And again, he's seeing things that look like branches pushed off trees, trees stripped of bark, diggings around under, under trees, and, you know, in South Africa, that's what it might mean. But in Australia, of course, it means a whole range of different issues, the way gum trees lose bark, the way branches will fall, the way red kangaroos will dip into the dirt in hot weather to cool themselves. And so there's a lot of these kind of stories. And the other thing is people expected to find in Australia what they'd found in uh, Southeast Asia and places like uh, what's today Indonesia and Malaysia. So in a sense, people were actually surprised there weren't big cats and there weren't monkeys and there weren't all these other animals. And you see that in the language they use. They talk about uh, both dingoes and thylacines. They call them hyenas when they mm -hmm. first encountered them. 
Is that is that why the the thylacines? Why is the thylacine sometimes called a tiger and sometimes called a, a wolf? Well, that's what they were calling them in the 19th century. Uh, they didn't know what to make of them. They'd never encountered this kind of life before, so they called them hyenas. Sometimes called them marsupial wolves. Sometimes called them marsupial tigers. The quoll they called uh, tiger cats and marsupial tigers, and it, it's the terminology is really confusing because they're actually trying to figure out. What on earth it means? Uh, some of the literature, for instance, talks about um, it really took you know, almost 50 years for people to work out how you can even draw Australian animals properly. They didn't understand the anatomy. You look at very early pictures of animals like kangaroos, and they'll look really quite distorted and alien because they don't understand the animals and they're grappling with this. Well, to them, a very alien environment. The second period... Um, coming out of the 1860s is a essentially period of settlement and industrialization. There's two things going on. You have the acclimatization society, which was uh, attempting to bring in animal, animals and plants from all over the world and release them in Australia to help make what they hoped would be this perfect environment. So they're bringing over deer, they're bringing over mongooses. They had a go of trying to release Burmese pythons at one point, but um, they died en route. Apparently, uh, some members expressed relief that that had happened. Um, They'll bring over monkeys, sometimes for quite trivial reasons, like the Burmese pythons. The guy said he'd like the colour of the scales compared to the gum trees. They're bringing over carp, they're bringing over rabbits, and these animals are being released. Sometimes they're entering into well, plague proportions, like with rabbits. Sometimes the animals wouldn't take off. They ended up uh, copying a lot of flack from government for this process of you know, releasing um, animals from all over the world in Australia. We still have major problems with introduced pests today from this period. I think the first uh, big cat panic you cover in the book is the Tentanilla yes. tiger. Can you tell us about that and uh, how that actually played out? Well, Tentanilla tiger story, it came out of this context, of course, all these released animals. You had, in the 1870s, the first traveling menageries hitting Australia, where they would travel around with animals like big cats. And the line you get from everyone is, like right through the papers, is what happens if these animals get loose and we have the problem with the rabbits happen with something that's quite dangerous, like a leopard? Or a tiger. In the Tantalor Tiger story, the uh, original story they had was that two tigers had escaped from St. Leon's Manor Circus in the 1880s. And they had a large scale panic with regards to stock losses at the time. Now, people at the time were writing about this, and something I found incredibly fascinating was, was that people were discussing environmental issues that we usually think of as part of the contemporary period. Um, There's a guy writing saying, if you engage in unfettered deforestation, you're going to force predators onto your land and eat your stock. And he said, based on my experience in South Africa, this particular guy, Robert Haldane, was arguing that you're going to force animals like leopards into your farmlands and, God forbid, they become managed. So this is going on. They're, they're having incredible stock losses. When you look at the newspapers at the time, you look at advertisements that are classified, you look at the discussions in the region, uh, farms are going under through enormous stock losses, which at the time was attributed, at least in some circles, to deforestation, forcing animals out of their natural habitat and onto farmlands. So this is happening. At the same time, you've got this story of uh, animals getting loose and breeding and becoming uh, entering plague proportions. You have the story of the tigers escaping. And in the middle of this panic, you have this story popping up that a guy saw an animal that he thought was a tiger. He describes it as about two to three feet tall at the shoulder, stripes along its back. And people started seeing kills that didn't fit 
their normal experience of how dingoes and wild dogs kill animals. And from this became the claim that there were tigers running loose and breeding in the area around Mount Gambia, which is sort of down uh, southwestern Victoria or southeastern South Australia. And it reached quite a fever pitch for three years. People were out shooting at the animals. They recruited the local militia. They took in volunteers. They had 50 constables out hunting tigers. Uh, they actually spent quite a lot of money arming them with Martini Henry rifles and sending them out. A, co- a colleague of mine hypothesized that they were also using it as an excuse to get the local militias out training. Uh, at one point, there was a ship that went down off the coast of Rhodes in that region, and they claimed they had insufficient personnel to do a proper rescue because everyone was out hunting tigers through the bush. In the context of this, it went on for three years, and then you have a sort of rising current of scepticism at the same time as you have mad hysteria and the other. They brought over, or they had a pair of Afghan shikari turn up, um, and were offering to pay them a hundred pounds each to go and catch this tiger. And at the end of the, uh, really the panic when it starts to fall away and you start getting rising scepticism and ridicule in the newspapers, a man by the name of Tom O'Donovan goes out and he shoots this dog and presents it as this was the real culprit. And the dog's still there now at the Tantanula Hotel pub. And the animal itself is very clearly a dingo, an alpine dingo. Um, I've had people from Melbourne Uni, sorry, Melbourne Museum have a look at it and they're also quite convinced it's an alpine dingo. But that wasn't good enough for people at the time. They said it was a wolf and a guy wrote a poem uh, borrowing from Tennyson's uh, the line, the Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold and they called it an Assyrian wolf. And then the story became, it's an Assyrian wolf of the kind kept at the Melbourne Zoological Gardens, and then it became the Melbourne Zoological Gardens were releasing predators over the border in South Australia to sabotage their wool industry. And it, it, it became really quite um, an extraordinary story, and I would argue that this story happening shortly after the establishment of the telegraph system in Australia really set the foundation of how people thought about these sorts of big cat panics. And, and indeed, they were, they were repeated every few years right up until the end of the Second World War. With that same pattern, someone going out, shooting an abnormally large or oddly coloured dog and presenting that as the true culprit. And some people would be satisfied, some people wouldn't, and the legend would continue. And of course, one of these little, one of these uh, local outbreaks occurred, it would become national news and become placed around, uh, placed around um, the telegraph system nationally and link him with all sorts of other local legends and panics. You've compared these panics to the uh, cattle mutilation panics in the United States. I think it's extremely like the cattle mutilations. The reason I think they're very similar is you've got similar stories of here's a dead animal that's ripped into pieces by a pack of you know, wild dogs or farm dogs run amok. Here's an animal with a big animal with a broken neck, slit up the middle, organs removed or a leg stripped to the bone that looks bizarre. It's bizarre and it's frightening. It's strange. You don't know what it is, but it's dangerous. And one thing I found particularly interesting was the cattle mutilation panics, was the common finding that what was actually happening was multiple predation on the same animal. So you have, you know, a, a big dog like a staghound kills a sheep, foxes get into it, birds get into it, and by the next morning we'll have a really quite bizarre looking corpse. So one of the big questions I have and uh, Simon has is, 
work out what's actually causing this particular type of kill systematically, you know, get a couple of veterinary scientists out to have a look at it. And once you understand that, you really understand what's driving the panics because, in, in my opinion, what drives these panics is unidentified stock kills. Yeah, I, I've done a lot of looking into that here in the States. And it's interesting to me because I grew up in, in a rural area in Georgia in the southeastern United States. And it still surprises me that people who are ranchers can be so unfamiliar with what a normal animal kill looks like. I mean, you, you don't want yeah. stock losses, but uh, they don't seem to be as familiar with what a predation looks like, what happens in the day or two after an animal dies. Um, it's just interesting I, because... I, I kind of had this sort of romantic view that, that they would, that you, you encounter so many things when you're a rancher or when you deal with livestock that you would just become educated about every aspect of the life cycle, and that just doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, one particular issue I thought was very important was the problem of breed-specific behavior in dogs, that dogs don't kill animals the same way when they run amok. But a, that animal like a stag ham will quite commonly go for breaking your neck and crushing the nose of an animal, whereas a pack of uh, animals like uh, Border Collies or Kelpies will run and nip and pull something to, to shreds. So, and the other thing, of course, is that dogs learn, and they learn behaviours on how to deal with uh, prey. It's, it's not like they're this static animal. They encounter new animals and they'll develop new strategies to serve them. Simon actually had an occurrence like that. He had very strange animal kills in his own property, and he worked out it was one of his own dogs, and this dog had learned to shoulder charge. He's actually with it shoulder charge a sheet to knock it over and then pull its throat out. And he said it was really quite startled until he actually caught his dog doing that um, to one of his sheep. And it's a very hard thing to think about your own dog doing that. So you've spoken about stock losses. What are some of the other signs and sightings and reports of big cats that you've heard of? Uh, uh, footprints is a common one. Uh, in particular, there's a whole branch of folklore in evaluating footprints and it's based primarily on... Uh, hunting and tracking literature from the United States, uh, the way in which you'll get you know, a trilobial thing at the back of a heel, whether the claws are showing in the prints. Um, and it can be quite tricky as well because hoaxing is so endemic to the area as well. Uh, one particular person who donated the collection of prints that had been uh, given to him at uh, Taronga Park Zoo in Melbourne, I've got them at Federation University in the library there, <laughs> is that he said, for all I know, they're coming from my own zoo. <laughs> yes, they're like Bigfoot, but unlike Bigfoot, these are animals that are known that mm-hmm. not, they actually have gotten loose in the Australian bush from time to time, as they do in the countryside in the United States here and there. Mm-hmm. Private collections, pets, uh, circus escapes, especially in the 19th century when things weren't very regulated. Has DNA analysis been applied to any of these modern cases? That's something Simon's trying to do at the moment, actually. He trying to get reports of stock kills, go out, collect the DNA analysis from animals that fit that profile and have been uh, tested by people at this university in Canberra. Um, so far, my understanding is it's all been mixtures of foxes and birds and all sorts where there's actually been DNA at all because part of the problem is the DNA is quite fragile. If it's been you know, really dewy or humid and things like that, it can be too damaged to actually find useful material. Mm-hmm. But um, it was actually interesting, I did a talk at this uh, library with him last night and um, he had some fresh materials going to send off and see what the people made of it. And it's an interesting question because one what, what of the things I find with this is it's got such this huge emotional weight. There was a lady talking at this do uh, at the library in Geelong and she was in tears over a client sighting and 
at the same time, you're talking about a myth about known animals. It's, it's in theory, it shouldn't be any different to feral pigs, feral goats, feral dogs, or any other animal, yet the emotional weight of the story is quite extraordinary. Um, and that's something I find really quite interesting about this. Why does it capture the Australian imagination so powerfully, indeed, has done so for the past you know, close to 150-odd years? And that's the sort of thing that particularly interests me as a historian of folklore, is the way people make sense of uh, these stories. And I think there's also a, a story in here about Australians engaging with our own environment and engaging with the destruction of wolf on our own environment through introduced species. Why do you think uh, the idea of big cats is so endemic to Victoria in particular? Well, it is nationwide. Um, I particularly focused on Victoria because, indeed, there's so much of it. I just had to draw a boundary somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I particularly think it's prominent in Victoria, though, in part because of the experience of the Climatisation Society based in Melbourne. Indeed, Melbourne Zoological Gardens was originally where they were storing animals prior to release. And I think that's particularly pertinent with regards to the Victorian experience of colonisation, as is also the problem of vast stock losses and indeed attacks on humans by dingoes during the period of uh, deforestation in the late 19th century and indeed right up until the 1930s. The Gippsland panther panics really hit a similar sort of story to the Tantanula tiger in the 1930s, resolved the same way at the time by shooting an abnormally large black dog. But again, it was relating to that period engaging in just clear selling of vast tracts of territory and the indigenous dingoes are forced into farmland to eat huge quantities of stock. I should also add there's another problem to this as well, where people engaging in uh, cattle and sheep rustling would conceal their activities by faking big cat attacks. A particularly famous guy, uh, Tom uh, Edison, out at Mount Gambier in 1911, and he'd been killing an animal, imitating the folklore of how big cat kill looks, and then stealing and killing uh, dozens of other sheep, uh, killing them in the bush, skinning them, and sending their skins to Melbourne and Adelaide to Confederates who were waiting to take them to market. So uh, I've heard, at least by contemporary folklore, um, that that still happens today. Uh, what are some of the other more famous cases, uh, if you don't mind hitting on some of those? Butterum bees? Buterum? Buterum? Well, I wanted to Butterum, or some people there say Budrum. See, my mum lives out that way, and uh, I went to the Budrum Forest. That's supposed to be uh, where these uh, where thylacine are still seen. And mm. uh, so I wanted to know what David thought of that. There's, there's a lot of fascinating material about there. Um, South Australia, for instance, they took stories of mainland thylacines very seriously, and I find it quite interesting in the Tantanula Tiger Panic, one of the lines put forward by a local naturalist was that people weren't actually seeing tigers, they were seeing thylacines, and that was put forward at the time as like the sceptical explanation of the stock losses and sightings. And Of course, today thylacines have an enormous uh, emotional weight on them and an enormous sense of national guilt. Uh, indeed, I would argue that's actually what drives a lot of attempts to clone the animal, that sense of, you know, when you're a kid and you're playing around and you knock over a vase and you're there with super glue going, it's still good, it's still good, it's still good. <laughs> you know, trying to, if you like, alleviate that kind of guilt. It's no accident, thylacine is such a famous animal, both in cryptozoological circles but also in uh, circles of wildlife preservation. But that was taken as given. Um, it's quite complex, so what people are actually calling thylacines. In the Gippsland Tiger Panic, I came across a story actually from the son of the guy who shot the, sorry, the nephew of the guy who shot 
the big dog presented as a Gippsland Panther, and he said, you know, he shot this striped dingo, and I was really quite excited and really interested, and then I got into the, eventually found the Farrier's report, and they described the animal as a bull mastiff with unusual brindle patterns along its back, or people seeing an animal where it has mange and the ribs look somewhat stripy and then calling it a thylacine. So those sort of things are happening. Um, people simply took it seriously in the early 19th century, and Dorothy Tunbridge argues it's not uh, completely outside of the realm of possibility, but that being said, I would like to see something definitive, <laughs> as opposed to stories of folklore from 19th century settlers where the terminology can be very awkward. I, I got really, really excited at one point. I was finding these circus reports where they talked about having a marsupial tiger in a travelling menagerie in 1940, and I was really, really excited about it. It was up in Queensland, and I went through the reports of it, and they're all talking about, you know, the last surviving um, marsupial tiger, and I was like, oh my God, did one actually survive in a private collection past 1936? And then I eventually found one report that said it had brown fur and had white spots across its body, so it was a quoll. Uh-huh. And people were calling quolls tiger cats and then marsupial tigers and it was a bit of a publicity thing for the circus. And you know, I came across these these kinds of stories so often that it had me very well, maybe some of them are accurate, I really can't tell through the sensationalism of the press at the time. Yeah. Unless someone actually preserved the skin and could actually go and have a look at it to stay, I really I don't know, I have my uh, skeptical blinkers on so does it <laughs> so to speak, with regards to evaluating them. <laughs> well, a weird theory that I came up with when I went through the Butterham Forest where people believe that they see the thylacine still, uh, mm. there are a lot of palm trees around there, and some of the fronds, especially when they collapse, they seem to resemble the distinctive stripes of the thylacine. So uh, mm. I took some photographs of that. I don't know, Blake, if you want to put that into the show notes. Sure. Uh, but the reason yeah. that sightings are so common to that area is there are claims that American soldiers brought Pumas, or Pumas, as Americans would say, into Queensland during World War II, which brings me to a, a question about a very interesting facet in your book, where you talked about mm. military mascots. Could you tell us yes, a little bit about this phenomenon? Yes, certainly. The military mascot story is by far the most common contemporary myth of where Pumas and leopards and things came from. As far as I was able to trace it back, the first mention of it I encountered was the story of the Angari Lion in 1947. Um, people talk about seeing a lion out there killing sheep, following that normal pattern. They brought in uh, an expert who was working at a circus, and it was Perry Brothers Circus, I think, if I remember correctly. And he uh, came out and he said, these attacks don't look like lion attacks because they're messy eaters. These attacks look much more like a puma. And then they discussed the idea of maybe the 22nd Bombardment Group stationed not far from the region had had pumas with them and released them. Uh, that story really became very strongly entrenched. And there's some interesting issues with this. When I was going through the Second World War, the common thing today in Australia is to blame American servicemen, but the concern both in Australian government records and in the newspapers at the time was actually Australian servicemen who were coming back from North Africa and coming back from Asia, bringing all kinds of exotic animals with them. Uh, quite often you'd have troop ships coming in and they'd find, you know, like thousands of exotic animals that these people had brought back as pets. This became a real concern, partly because of the problems that the Australian government already knew about with regards to introduced species. The other problem they had was animals were coming in with all sorts of exotic diseases, and the real clenching point for the Australian government was in 1942 where some 
Polish troops who'd been fighting in North Africa came into uh, Fremantle in uh, Western Australia, and they had these monkeys that had yellow fever. So the Australian government issued a ban on all mascots except for specifically regimentally approved ones. However, this did not apply to Americans, and I have a hypothesis that part of the reason uh, the American military has become so heavily blamed for this is in part bitterness that Americans could maintain mascots and Australians couldn't, combined with it always being easier to blame the foreigner compared to uh, your own personnel. And indeed, Australian military personnel are just intensely venerated, especially from the Second and First World War. Mm -hmm. uh, almost a, uh, a sacrilege, if you like, to criticise them. As they are here too, in the States. <laughs> it's the unfair conservation of mascots law. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's you know, like there's one point they ordered in Sydney the execution execution pose, it's a bit dramatic. They ordered the putting down of all big cat mascots and circus animals in Sydney at one point. They were scared of the Japanese bombs. Mm. Sydney you'd have the release of predators running around on army bases and things attacking people. Wow. Um, certainly saying yeah, it's an interesting it's a it's a interesting al story. A, it's a, well it's an odd risk assessment is <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, didn't you say that uh, hundreds sorry, didn't you say that hundreds of animals had been put down? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh one customs unit reported, you know, in a particular month they put down two hundred and twenty something animals, mostly things like mm -hmm. dogs and small monkeys, but there were a number of people who had big cats as mascots. One poor tiger, I feel really sorry for this animal. It had been captured its mother had been shot by uh, a Japanese officer. He took the cub uh, with him to uh, New Guinea, where he was stationed. The position was overrun by the Australians. An Australian soldier took the tiger cub, put it in his rucksack and tried to dope it himself. It got found when he returned to Townsville and then the animal was shot, of course. And, you know, those sort of stories were quite common and uh, there was also a real kind of hysterical panic about the animals getting loose, but in particular bringing things over like rabies, foot and mouth disease, yellow fever... A number of issues. But that being said, I should note that it's not a story, the idea of these animals being released in the wild or getting loose or people who don't want to put them down releasing them, it's not at all an absurd story. Indeed, that's a problem that customs wrestle with today. I mean, while I was writing this, I know that at one point a woman got caught trying to smuggle a tiger cub into Australia in her luggage. There is this underlying story about the uh, illegal trade in exotic wildlife that was endemic in the 19th century. There were a lot of pubs that had classified ads where you could buy tiger cubs and monkeys and things. And uh, remains, that remains an issue today. Uh, the, uh, particularly uh, exotic birds, the international um, trade in... Um, Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. 
So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. You know, illegally captured exotic animals is just enormous. If you, if you consider that the, that you might be able to let it go in the wild versus knowing full and well it was going to be put down, I could certainly see where that mm. might happen. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah indeed. There's one particular story that was recorded by two different people in an interview by the Deakin University uh, research into the story of pumas being in the Grampian Mountains in Victoria. And they interviewed two people where one guy was a guard at the airbase at Mill where they had an American uh, bombing unit stationed. 22nd Bombardment Group was stationed there for three weeks in 1942. Had a similar story from another woman uh, recorded in the 60s by Irene Adensall who had a story of a puma with four cubs being brought in by the uh, by a B-17 at not one night. Being left there for a while, customs argued uh, for the animal to be put down. U.S. soldiers couldn't handle it, and it was abandoned on the Horsham, the Hamilton Road, or uh, Roses Gap or Halls Gap, depending on who you are. So you know, there's a lot of these sort of stories that are floating around. Um, evaluating whether they happened or not is another matter, but it's not an absurd issue by any means. In particular, I think the story they had was that the animal wasn't happy in its cage and was getting quite violent and agitated. You know, I mean, these stories are... It's not something like Bigfoot where you require something outside of the realm of science and massive new material. The idea of people having an exotic pet and dumping it is not something that pushes the imagination too far, so to speak. Right, right. And we've got cases like that in the States, in Florida, with people releasing pythons. Yep. Yep. It does happen. Uh, Well, Wallabies in England, people getting pet wallabies and releasing them, and that has become a bit of a hassle for native wildlife. Florida is also overrun with old New Yorkers, and there's just no stopping it. So I don't. Yeah, and I I would put too, particularly in the 19th century, given the experience, particularly with rabbits and foxes, and then feral cats, with the release of feral cats in the 18 large number of the feral cats in the 1883 Rabbit Control Act. The idea to them that these often very shoddily run circuses uh, could lose animals, they could breed and cre- create a major pest is a very reasonable concern. Indeed, the concern um, Australian Customs has to this day, which is why we have such tight customs control in Australia with regards to exotic animals and wildlife. Yeah, I've always known yeah. the, the rules to be really stringent. So to read a lot of your, uh, your book and hear about how they used to be was very mm. surprising to me. Yeah, and indeed... It- Precisely because of those disastrous experiences with animal releases in the 19th century leading up to the Second World War, it's precisely because of those experiences that we have such tight control today. Mm-hmm. Um, because they were, you know, in uh, potential uh, quite disastrous and indeed things like feral pigs. And there are a lot of stories about these animals growing enormous. The stories of feral cats growing enormous was already established in the 1890s. It's a really bizarre story, that one, because it's something I can't find environmental scientists to agree on. As some people look at it and say, no, it's absurd, they only reach a few kilos. 
uh, a colleague of mine working in environmental science at Federation Uni was saying, oh, he's seeing them, you know, getting quite big to 10 kilos, and he has this theory for it that the smaller ones are getting wiped out and the larger ones are having larger ranges. And, you know, he had a view that the Grampian Fumistory was misidentification of larger feral cats, you know, seen at a distance at dusk. And so there's a lot of the stories and folklore and competing points of view. Uh, one of the earlier Tentmiller Tiger stories, people tried to placate it by saying they killed an enormous feral pig that was eating the sheep, and then, they, then the, the pig was meant to be able to run faster than a greyhound, which is pretty good going for a huge pig. And the pig started to grow in newspaper stories. It eventually ended up being like nine feet long and standing four feet at the shoulder. And then by the time it reached the Barrier Minor and Broken Hill, it had changed species and the story became a guy had poisoned an enormous dingo that stood four feet, 11 inches tall at the shoulder and was nine feet long and had enormous tusks. <laughs> you know, the spread of yarns is you know, quite remarkable. And you there reading the newspaper in good faith, hearing about gigantic dingoes. <laughs> Power of urban legend. Yeah, well, there is a... There yeah. is a um, a film called Razorback that was from the yeah. 80s about a giant Australian pig. It's probably the best giant Australian pig movie I've ever seen. I'd like to differ. Razorback, of course, cashing in on all that established folklore. Yeah. The established mm. folklore was already established by the late 19th century that feral animals are being released and not only becoming pests, they're becoming huge and monstrous and uh, vicious predators that are attacking and eating people. You know, the idea of you releasing a normal feral cat and then the idea that the feral cat's growing to the point where it can eat people becomes quite, I don't know, pretty good going for a moggy. <laughs> so there, you talk about um, big cats as being a culprit and uh, dingoes, but also you covered the Yari and Bunyip. And how did those creatures fit in with the sort of folkloric aspects of the big cat lore? Well, it's really interesting. There's a whole collection of these animals and but the Bunyip's case is also integrated with indigenous folklore, but in a very collective way, like the United States. The different Aboriginal communities were separate cultures with separate languages, which had quite different technology depending on where you were. And this word Bunyip became applied all across Australia. And as uh, Malcolm Smith argued, uh, by the time people are reaching places like Arnhem Land, they're asking Aborigines there about bunyips, and the Aborigines think they're using a white word to describe a white monster, and the white people think they're talking about an Aboriginal story. What happened with kangaroos, actually? <laughs> yeah, it happened with most of our uh, native animals. And, and there's lots of yarns for this. The other thing is that Australian Aborigines seem to really enjoy playing um, practical jokes. The suburb I live in, Wendaree, just out of Ballarat, it's actually named after an Aboriginal swear word. Um, <laughs> When the wind reads, it's literally means go F yourself. <laughs> and, oh, wow. and they named the town after this swear word, which came about with a settler harassing a woman trying to fish, and she kept yelling at him, Wendere, Wendere, and he calls it Lake Wendere. And Lake Wendere, uh, as it was put to me by an Aboriginal elder who's friends with my father, he said it's kind of the rudest thing you can say to someone. <laughs> wow. There's a lot of these. There's a little town outside of... Uh, Ballarat called Bungaree means who's this guy with a big hat. There's a lot of these sorts of yarns. Um, Terry Pratchett made a joke of it at one point saying, you know, a mountain called, it's a finger, you idiot. (laughs) 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 The town of Warrigal where I grew up was actually asking people what's that and he pointed to a wild dog and said, yeah, Warrigal. And the settler thinks he's asking what he called his place and the Aborigine is responding with, yeah, it's a dog. (laughs) 
a lot of those stories. In, in case with the Bunyip, they, in 19, uh, sorry, 1847, they, uh, sorry, 1845, they took these fossils they found of megafauna and they went to an Aboriginal community in uh, Warren Ponds, which is just south of Geelong, about an hour and a half drive from where I live. And they went to these Aborigines and they said to them, well, what are these animals? And the Aborigines said it was a bunyip. And they asked me what a bunyip is and they described this story of an animal that uh, lives on the um, lives on the riverbank. It eats people by hugging them to death underwater. That's how it's described in the original article. Uh, it's got on its back scales and feathers. It slides into the bank if you disturb it without it's barely making a ripple, was I think the term they used. It lays eggs on the bank, but they're not good for eating. It has a long bill like that of a duck, but serrated edges or teeth around it, um, like a stingray's tail. Oh, they like to eat children. That's what I was told when I was a kid. Personally, when I looked at it, the thing that really occurred to my mind is they're hearing folkloric accounts of a crocodile. And they've rocked up to these people with these bones, and they don't know what the heck they are, so they think in their own folklore and cultural context, what the heck is it? Um, my hypothesis for that, which I'm um, working with an Indigenous scholar on for an article we'll write later on, is that these people had heard about crocodiles by talking to other Aboriginal communities that further north, but they'd never seen one. And when they're given the bones of something that was an enormous animal, they told a story that they'd heard. The whole lying on the bank in sunny weather and when you disturb them, they slide in and don't make a ripple, the hugging thing to death underwater, it, that's a hypothesis I'd really like to uh, test more thoroughly. But this story then spreads and it gets applied to pretty much every water monster across Australia. And it's an example where the uh, another myth, the Turudin, uh, which is a little town near Phillip Island in Melbourne, um, they call it, it's often called a bunyip. And I'm thinking, well, is that a bunyip or is that Turudin, which is a particular animal to the um, Kurnai of Gippsland? It's an interesting question here where this, these Aboriginal stories are given this Collective identity, I would also suggest that Bunyip's interpreted through the white myth of the water horse um, from England and Scotland, and then it gets applied generically across the whole country. A similar thing seems to happen to the Yowie, or Australia's Bigfoot. The first reports I have of it is that it's a water monster um, that's humanoid that pulls things underwater and kills them and eats them, but they also use the word Yowie to, as a kind of cooey, which is like a high-pitched call you make to let other people know you're there. And then gradually it sort of morphs into Australia's gorilla and to a hairy man myth, and then by the present it's become an Australian version of Bigfoot. But there's no fossil record for uh, primates in Australia, right? No, not at all. Okay. I want uh, David to give an example of a cooey. Okay, a cooey. Um, doing cooey. Cool. <laughs> oh. I haven't heard that for a while. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. we, we do that in Georgia too. Oh. But you have yeah, to earn it. Rebel yell and all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have that too. Yeah. yeah. So. Thank you. <laughs> and the thing is, different Aboriginal communities that have their own versions, and around the Hunter River, their version was Yowie. Wow. So. Wh- and they also talked about when you slept, your Yowie could travel. So one of the interesting things is people would interpret these indigenous li- uh, stories literally as this must mean an undiscovered animal when. When you look at what they're writing, even through the murk of settler reports and language issues, it's often partly real, partly spirit, partly folklore, and you're not quite sure what they mean. The other thing is that Indigenous people enjoy playing practical jokes. The Bunyip's got a wonderful one, where they got this... Um, they came forward and they presented when the Bunyip was all the rage. Um, you know, everyone was talking about it, this new big animal living in Australia. 
they had these uh, scientific journal articles out, you know, new species discovered in Australia. And these Aborigines came up and they ran the Burrumbidgee River and they presented this skull. And so this is a bunyip skull. And it was on museums. You can actually look up scientific journal articles about it, analysing the skull and theorising what it could be and all the rest of it. Anyway, after a while, some experts start working out that it's a um, deformed foal's head. Mm. <laughs> and then things go a bit further where um, they start working out that it was a partic- the particular Aborigines who gave it had helped this farmer deliver a foal and they'd run off with the foal that this deformed foal and he thought they were going off to eat it and then they actually turned up later on and gave the foal to this scientist who's there investigating the bunya, telling him it's a bunya skull. And then I find interesting today, there's these articles debating, you know, were they playing a practical joke or did they not know the difference between a deformed horse head and a bunya for their folklore? And I'm pretty, I'd put money on, they knew totally well what they were doing and were <laughs> trying to uh, play a practical joke on this scientist who's there asking them about bunyas. Particularly given that they were involved in the delivering of the foal. Sure. <laughs> Well, it, it seems like these stories remind me a lot of the, like we talked about before, the American cattle mutilations, especially yeah. where, where there's probably plenty of mundane predation going on. And, and in yeah. the book, you talk a lot about dingoes and dingo hybrids being frequent suspects. Mm. Um, so for the people not from Australia, how do it, what are dingoes and how do they compare with domesticated dogs we're familiar with? Yeah, well, look, dingoes are very, very closely related to domesticated dogs. There's a lot of scientific debate about whether they should be seen as their own species, like wolves, or just um, a particular breed of dog. Um, that debate's still raging today. There's a lot of emotion about it because dingoes tend to be either idealised or demonised, depending on what side of the farming ecology divide you sit on. Um, dingoes, uh, yeah, typically... Um, uh, when they've interbred with dogs, they become sort of indistinguishable from other wild dogs, how they behave. But dingoes, pure dingoes, tend to have very small family group packs. They do a lot of hunting by going in, biting and ducking out of the way. And a lot of that relates to kangaroos being quite dangerous when they're um, uh, fighting for their lives. So they're going to sort of bite, jump back, bite, jump back until the animal's worn down and they can um, kill it. It, it. They're very, very important in Aboriginal folklore. And you'd often measure your wealth and importance by the number of dogs you had. Uh, indeed, Bunjil's Cave, not far from where I live, it's a, uh, a place where they have like a very prominent local Aboriginal creation story. And they have Bunjil, the creator spirit, and he's there with his two dogs. Like he already had two dogs before he went and created human. They're, they're enormously significant. There's an interesting bit of folklore actually where from this region where you would encounter a dingo and the dingo would look at you like it's trying to speak and it would speak to you. And if you replied back to it as you would a human, the animal would like eat your soul or turn you to stone. So there's a very, very powerful cultural role for indigenous culture. The other side is that they're, yeah, just in a practical sense, uh, a tawny-coloured, um, yellowy to uh, browny-coloured animal with occasional rare black ones and white ones. Uh, down where I live in Victoria, they're considerably fluffier, a bit more wolf-like in appearance. Up north, they're a lot more... Uh, I'd say coyote-like, as in very thin fur and quite narrow animals. Incidentally, something I should mention, one of the big culprits, I think, in thylacine sightings is people encountering animals with mange. Uh, really strange look to the animals. The ribs look kind of striped because of where the fur rubs off. Um, and the animals have a very strange gait and look particularly odd. And almost all the footage I've seen put online of a supposed thylacine sighting is being a dog or a fox with mange. 
which is interesting because it reminded me a lot of uh, reading American stories with uh, misidentified bears. Mm-hmm. In fact, my father and I had that once up on the Blue Mountains hiking and we saw this animal. It was really bizarre, quite close to us. Really strange looking with a really weird gait and seemed to have stripes on us. And I was about 18 at the time and we took some photos and we're like, oh my God, we saw a thylacine. And then we went home and actually looked at a thylacine and realized, no, we actually just saw a dingo with mange. And, I think a lot you of know, the animal. Sorry. I was just going to say, I, I don't think uh, everyone would go back and do their research. A lot of people would just accept that they'd seen a, a thylacine. Yeah. Yeah, and then it suddenly shifts from being just, uh, you know, an odd dog to I've had a magical experience. Yeah, I think doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It becomes a, like enchanting the bush. And I've been out with people, you know, looking for big cats, and they'll go out the bush in pitch dark and be there with a directional microphone hearing all the sounds amplified through a a simple connection to a radio tape player and you have this the uh the way your emotions play on you and the excitement and the little adrenaline rush and a little bit of fear in the background it's quite a it's sort of an intoxicating experience and i could see how it so, totally plays into that sense of connection with the bush but also the bush becomes enchanted and magical and mysterious it's not this um controlled known quantity mm-hmm. So in, in your book, you also talk about some of the cultural and uh, ideological struggles between skeptics and uh, paranormal yeah. folks about these issues. So can you mm. talk about the, some of those dis- disagreements and battles and, and, and how that's playing out? Yeah, it's one of the reasons in my research where I try to actually eschew the is it real or not questions. In part. Like I have opinions on it, but very quickly things will become a polarized debate between true believers and I wrote really cool Skeptic is where stuff becomes ridiculed for its own sake rather than engaging with the argument. And that pattern, which indeed has uh, bled its way into government, going through government records on this, there's this real pattern of absolute derision and ridicule from urban MPs out to rural MPs who are getting a lot of pressure from their uh, constituents to engage in um, going out and doing something about the big cat problem. Just recently, Victoria, we saw that with the Victorian government big cat report where pressure from the rural sector forced the Liberal National Government to go out and do a research project on the story of big cats in the bush. Um, I was a little bit involved in that, and uh, but the way it became received is a kind of a either absolute anger and um, derision and nastiness at it for not showing the big cats exist versus people going, it's absolute proof that there aren't any. And then the report itself argues that, well, there's definitely been individual cats on the loose, sometimes even quite recently, had a story of a, a lion that had escaped from the Bacchus Marsh Lion Safari Park for six months at one point. Um, at the same time, he was saying there's material that is worthy of further investigation. Indeed, I quite agree with that. If you're having stock killed that people don't ident- can't identify what it is, it's worth, even just for people's peace of mind, getting some veterinary scientists out and looking at it. Sure. People have a better, even if it's just to understand the behavior of feral dogs better. Yeah, and it's not just fear, it's also an economic cost for these people. I mean, that's it's yeah. expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's only talked about... You know, with his current, you know, work being a farmer, he's saying when you lose stuff, he said it's not just I've lost money. He said you kind of have this personal, deeply personal connection to the animals on your farm. They're an extension of you, and the thought of things coming out and killing them that you can't identify is saying that's a really, really quite gut wrenching 
it's very it's the reason um we I made the call to call the book Snails from the Tea Tree is so many of these stories are you got settled, controlled farmland and the British model, you've got borders and on the borders bush and you don't know what's in the bush. You hear weird noises, strange things, and stuff comes out at night, kills your sheep or your cattle or in some rare cases your horses, and disappears back into this unknown alien bush. And then people go there again and see snarls. And they don't really know if it's a possum or a fox or whatever. And also I found that when people were in an emotional state, they even normal sounds would suddenly become terrifying. I've seen people getting absolute hysterics over hearing a fox screaming. And it, it's quite interesting that, you know, once you're in a state, you're outside late at night, you're looking for something that's killing your sheep, you hear these screams and you record them. And in their mind, the screams are like something horrific like out of this earth even though they're normally aware of what a fox scream sounds like or what a koala sounds like. Koalas can sound quite terrifying when you hear them in the bush at night and you don't know what they are. Uh, they have this really um, low-pitched growling noise followed by screams as they you know, fight with each other for territory and mates and things. And, uh, similar thing with possums. And the way that, that those familiar objects and sounds can become terrifying is there's something I found quite fascinating with this. And people would even think, no, the, the tape's being altered or something's being changed because they couldn't handle that what they'd recorded is not the way it sounded to them when they're out the bush late at night. Yeah. And I, I think those sort of things happen a lot. You know, a normal feral cat changes. Um, I have a working hypothesis on the matter at the moment, something I'd really like to see tested, which is that it's actually like a gestalt effect. They're having multiple predation on stock. People are out looking for what's killing their stock. They're seeing a feral cat at a distance. They're hearing weird screams at night. And they're assuming that it's all one animal when it's actually a combination of different features that they're integrating together. And when they've got 150 years of big cat stories, it becomes a very natural position to slide to. So, David, it sounds like big cat mythology is quite important to community identity and heritage. Would you agree with that? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. And you'll find you know, places um, like Tatmoor, for example, uh, Gippsland, the, uh, Hall's Gap, you know, has a black cat cafe and they quite self-identify with those stories as being part of their local identity, their heritage, their culture. In a sense, they often the, the actual belief itself is used as a marker of are you really a local? I guess in closing, uh, are pumas and cougars and jaguars and tigers and lions and leopards and uh, hybrid big cats roaming the countryside of Victoria or elsewhere in Australia? Okay, what I would say is are there, are there or have there been individual animals that have gotten loose from menageries and things? Yes, that's completely well documented that has happened. I would have huge doubts that you have anything like a breeding population, but that being said, I would like to see research done on what causes those kind of kills. I have my suspicions that it's people engaging multiple predation and different breed-specific behaviour by dogs, but I would really like some veterinary scientists to show me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> us yeah. too. And are the sightings as common today as they have been historically? Oh, completely, yeah. It's it was interesting when I was doing that uh, do at the library last night. The audience, to a person, were believers, uh, um, and you know people were in tears about it and all sorts. Um, it was just absolutely endemic to that rural, you know, Geelong Otway's identity that the big cats are out there and they just take it as a given.
Mm-hmm. In fact, even just 2013, they pushed the Victorian government to spend a considerable amount of money to go out and do a big cat research project, and that's in the face of ridicule from uh, the opposition parties. The, the pressure was so strong on rural MPs to uh, engage in that kind of project. Mm-hmm. It's quite extraordinary. Well, I think the tone that you took in the book is really fair, and um, mm. and I really enjoyed reading it. So where can our listeners get a copy of your book? Yeah, the best place to get it is through Australian Scholarly Publications. I can send you a link if you like. I've actually I've got a link for that. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, it's the best place to get it. You can get it through uh, Dimix and so on as well. I imagine it'd probably be harder to get in the United States and Australia. Um, but... Ordering it through Australian Scholarly Press is probably the best bet. Have you got any plans to make an ebook version? Um, I'll have to talk to my publisher about that. Um, but I imagine so. Apparently, it's been selling quite well, and the um, being again such an endemic story. And apparently, as far as I understand, besides the Deakin University project, it's the only academic study done on the topic. And then there's heaps and heaps of you know Bigfoot real kind of books on it, but there's what staggered me with this is I'm the first person to go through and do a systemic historical study and actually just trace out the uh, history and folklore of it, um, you know, in a, a systematic way, trying to link it into other stories and events and so on. Like people hadn't actually seen that material before. Most people think the story only goes back to World War Two. Mm. And one of the first things I came across was, no, this has actually been well-established since the mid-19th century. It's fun, isn't it? <laughs> mm. Oh, I love it. It's a fantastic so, book, and uh, I really love the photographs in there as well. Yeah, there were so many we couldn't actually put up because of issues of um, publication costs and that sort of thing. Yeah, always a problem. We were originally going to have roughly 40 photos in there. We may have asked you this before when you were on last time, but just in case, yeah. or maybe it's changed, but what's your favorite monster? Uh, I still love black dogs, and I'm looking at trying to get back into the black dog folklore again uh, next year if I can. It's just a matter of uh, convincing the people who hold funding strings that I can do it, do it in terms of being better placed than people already in England. <laughs> what have you got in mind for black dogs? I, I guess last time I deliberately got a really focused story to try and get around the problem of people shoehorning local myths into one big collective universal archetype and I'd like to do something broader where I'm looking at different local examples and I also am desperately keen to get into the Theodora Brown collection in the uh, University of Exeter which, which is where I got a lot of the material for the Black Dog of Bungie book. Uh, Theodora Brown, um, early 20th century folklorist, uh, just collected vast quantities of primary reports and all these different ghosts and black dog and in her 60s she was even collecting UFO myths. And just collecting them down uh, as part of English folklore and heritage, and I really desperately want to get into that in real depth and uh, you know trace through these stories. Just you know, my interest seeing how these stories develop over time and how people use them to shape their identity and engagement with social issues. Mm-hmm. Um, currently, good. I'm doing a project on ghost hoaxing. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. yeah um, remember Mike Dash you had on your show? I he sure do. Yeah. <laughs> first thing occurred to me listening to that was, was that happening in Australia? And indeed it was. People were going around painting themselves in phosphorus paint and jumping out and terrifying people. <laughs> there was actually the point in Ballarat they had a town meeting about what to do with all the ghost hoaxes in, uh, in late 19th century Ballarat. And so um, I'm putting together a book on Ballarat's folklore and I'm writing a chapter on it in a few journal articles and 
I am getting together with some people tonight, actually, and we've got some of the same paints, and we're going to recreate what the hoaxes would have looked like. Neat. It's just, just going to be really fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you're doing, you're doing a lot of interesting things at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very fun. And, of course, I do this because I love it, and I find it so engaging and fun. And particularly once you skip past this trying to prove these things are true for validation and you look at what they mean socially, mm-hmm. it becomes so much more of a really, well, to my mind anyway, a, a really interesting exploration of you know, human nature and character and aesthetics and art and all sorts of things. Well, and I, I'm yeah. fascinated by the, the, the meme side of things, uh, or the virality yeah. of the ideas. Like, uh, mm. if you look at, did that idea travel from England to Australia or was it the other direction? Um, you know, would you be able to find a case zero? These are great questions. I just love that. I, I very much think the Australian case came out of people imitating Springfield Jack. Could be. They're even calling it that in, uh, 1860s Ballarat. And then it got entangled in the spiritualist movement. And there's a lot of people who are enjoying having these, you know, well-educated gentlemen saying, you know, ghost or rubbish or, uh, and then having someone jump out and terrify them people <laughs> a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, well, people uh, went to enormous, elaborate constructions for their costumes too. They were wonderful pieces of 19th century aesthetic. I just love it on the pure gothic fun of it alone. That's neat. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah well, terrific. Well, well, thanks for spending some time talking to us. I uh, I look forward to your next project, and I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, highly oh. recommend it to the listeners. Monster Dog. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and you've been listening to an interview with David Waldron about his book, Snarls from the Tea Tree, an in-depth look at reports of alien big cats in Australia. Karen Stolzno was my co-host for this episode. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the hosts and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Check the show notes at monstertalk.org for links to David's book, photos, and sound files of the Australian nightlife, the wildlife kind, not some Sydney disco. Monster Talk theme music's by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thank you for listening. subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Every time I start to say the names of places in Australia, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm just <laughs> making things up. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.